Jesus, we want to thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. That's why we're here singing songs. It's why we're here remembering and celebrating your birth. We thank you for this holiday season. We thank you for the gift of Christmas. We thank you that we can really be a demonstration or an expression of, of who you are in the giving of gifts because you are the first and foremost generous giver. Even though this world has been has taken this holiday season and Christmas and materialized it and we're here to celebrate the birth of our Savior. The baby who is now our our king, but also our brother and our friend. And so we worship you this morning, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I'm going to take a break from the Angry Birds sermon series. I get a sense of a lot of hostility with everybody. Yeah. So, um, and, um, do a two-part series here, uh, kind of an Advent thing on hope. So, this will be a little bit of a different sermon too. So, I want you guys to just more more stories and a little bit of scripture. So, I want to begin by talking about um, this quote here by Howard Macy. Um, hopefully, you can read it. If not, I can read it to you. But the spiritual world, your your, your spiritual life. It cannot be made suburban. It is always frontier. And if we would live in it, we must accept and even rejoice that it remains untamed. In other words, walking with God, going through life, okay? You know, there was an actual wilderness experience that Israel went through, and that was called the desert, right? In the wilderness. Where did David, where was his character form? On the run from Saul in the wilderness, Okay? Now, I want to begin, though, by uh, the story. This is from Ken Geyer. This is what he wrote in April of 1978. He was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he, this was his last um, assignment before he got his master's. And he says, Old Testament topology in Matthew's and Luke's temptation narratives. A thesis presented to the faculty of the Department of Semitic Languages and Old Testament Exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree Master of Theology by Kenneth Paxton Geyer, April the 2nd, April 4th, 1978. Now that was the first page of Ken Geyer's Master Thesis, which is also the last page of his four years of theological education. Now, after reading those first few pages, it sounds like Ken Geyer knows what he's talking about, doesn't it? He continues. He says, certainly after four years of theological education, I should know what I'm talking about, meaning talking about a wilderness experience. There's only one problem. As of April 4th, 1978, I'd never been through a wilderness that even remotely resembled the one about which I had written with such authority. Yet a month later, in the ceremonious turn of a tassel, I became a master of theology. 
When I graduated from seminary, I pushed off from the dock, having charted a course to teach in a secular university and write during the summers. Though I had no formal education in writing and didn't know what I would write about. The course quickly and unexpectedly changed as I was being turned down by every institution of higher learning to which I applied. So I helped start a small rural church. After two years there, I felt a gentle and filling of my sails. And something in the wind was that the Spirit of God telling me it was time to start writing. That's when I attempted my first book, a short children's novel about a year in the lives of a set of twins, a boy and a girl, one of whom was mentally handicapped. Writing the book was an exhilarating experience. So I left the church and took a job selling oil-filled equipment, hoping to earn enough money so I could take off some time to continue writing. After two and a half years selling pump units and sucker rods, I was able to do that. It was a dream come true. I moved our family to East Texas to the town of Nacogdoches, where every day I walked to the college library and wrote from eight to five. My ship had come in. What I didn't know was that it had come in on its way to running aground. As its hull scraped the shoals, I discovered that the riding life was not the romantic cruise the travel brochures made it out to be, but rather one jarring rejection after another. It was a painfully introspective time for me, trying to get a grip on my elusive craft, trying to find out who I was which proved equally elusive in trying to support a wife and four kids on the words I put on an eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. For two years, nothing sold. Two years of going to work every day and never coming home with a paycheck. Someone once said that writing is the only profession in which one can make no money without looking ridiculous. But at the end of two years, if I wasn't looking that way, I was certainly feeling that way. When our savings ran out, we liquidated our IRA, sold a car, and some furniture. When that money ran out, we put our house up for sale. It seemed like the appropriate, however improvident, next step. I mean, was it? Was it walking by faith or just wishing upon a star? Was I being steadfast or just stubborn? I couldn't tell. I was determined to write and to make a living at it. Was I too determined or not determined enough? I didn't know. It was a recessionary time in Texas. We tried to sell our house and houses weren't selling. I hung wallpaper to make ends meet. So many times I would come home from work with sore knees and a sunken heart feeling so foolish for squandering our security on pipe dreams and return postage for publishers. I kept a journal of those times, my thoughts clinging to some passages from the Bible, a few stanzas of poetry, an occasional scene from a movie, anything. But going into my third year of clinging, I was tired and starting to lose my grip. On January 22, 1985, he wrote this in his journal. Nacogdoches is, is that how I say it, Judy? Nacogdoches? It is so discouraging being on the outside with no job and no material security and everyone else seeming so ordered 
and established. Adrift, cut loose from any moorings and far from harbor, it is a dizzy and sick feeling, a lonely feeling. I hate it. February 20th, he wrote this. Nacogdoches, I have come to a point of emotional and spiritual exhaustion. Drained dry, a drop of life at a time. I can no longer read my Bible, feeling forsaken. I can no longer pray, feeling ignored. It is a great hurt. If God is truly a great God, he can love me even though I can no longer look into his face or call out to him in prayer. If he cannot, then my prayers and devotions are ill-spent anyway. My time is better used elsewhere. Since during those last days in Nacogdoches, as I was trying to figure out what God wanted from me, I came across a passage of scripture that I noted in my journal on April 9th. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So I couldn't rejoice in those days. My faith wasn't that strong. But I could believe from the budding azaleas and hydrangeas <clears throat> emerging from the East Texas winter that there was at least the hope of something emerging from my life as well. As I look back on it, that passage was a window of the soul revealing what God wanted for me. He wanted me to trust that spring would follow winter, to live by faith, not by sight, and to have him, not success, be the source of my joy. Six months later, the house finally sold, and my wife's parents let us move into a vacant farmhouse they owned in Poolville, Texas. For the next year, we lived off the equity of the house we had sold. I continued to write, and I continued to tell myself that spring would come. But it didn't. It was so humiliating to face friends and relatives and have to answer well-meaning questions like, how's the writing going? All the while knowing it wasn't going anywhere, but having trouble admitting that to myself, let alone to anybody else. To protect myself from the embarrassment of those encounters, I withdrew to Poolville. There I was, there were all of us, all six of us, in the middle of nowhere, with no savings, no retirement fund, no home of our own, no job, no medical insurance, and no future. Or so it seemed. As physical hunger intensifies with the absence of food, so spiritual hunger intensifies with the absence of God. That is why the wilderness plays such an important role in our lives, as it did in the lives of Moses, David, Elijah, and Job, and so on. See, the wilderness is where we experience prolonged periods of God's absence. For me, that was Poolville, Texas. For you, it may be Los Angeles, or General Motors, or graduate school. For me, it was a crisis brought on by a change of careers. For you, it may be a crisis brought on by cancer, or divorce, or some other struggle. Whatever the wilderness, wherever the wilderness, it is in that wilderness where we learn that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That his word is not, the only, is not only the most natural food for our soul, but the most necessary. 
Now, we all know that God works in mysterious ways, and in King Geyer's case, God spoke to him, ironically, through a wild stray kitten that they took in. And after capturing the kitten and putting it in a, a bathroom and giving it time to adjust, he put on some gloves, opened the door, and picked up the clawing, hissing, spitting kitten. That's why I don't like cats. He writes, what the kitten didn't know as he's holding his cat, or his kitten in his hands, was that all I wanted to do was to draw it close, to give it a safe and warm place in our house, feed it so it didn't have to hunt down its food. I wanted to take care of it, give it a better life, pet it, and look after it. That's all. I didn't want to hurt it. But how would a kitten born in the wild know that? Suddenly, I realized I was that kitten. Scared stiff one moment and spitting mad the next. Was that what God was wanting to do with me? Draw me close? Give me shelter, food, look after me? But the shelter I was wanting was the security of a job, not the security of his arms. The food I was wanting was from the grocery store, not from his hand, and I could look after myself, thank you very much. I just needed a break, that was all. The God who now held me in the clutches of his hands was so foreign to the God I had once held in mind. That image of the scared kitten stayed with me and softened me, he would write. I didn't want to scratch and bite anymore. I was through fighting, but not crying. Every day, as the sun set in the expansive Texas sky, I cried out to God to give me my life back, to rescue me from the wilderness. He taught me that the way out of the wilderness was on a road paved with tears. The road led to Southern California and a job. Of all the jobs I applied for, it was the only one that said yes, and it was a writing job. I couldn't believe it. Someone was actually paying me to do the, that what I loved. The fig tree had budded, spring had come. Finally, when I first listened to the call of God to write, Little did I realize it was a call to the wilderness. Now Ken would go on to write in his book, Windows of the Soul, how necessary his wilderness experience was to his career. It says, in the wilderness, not seminary, God prepared me to be a writer. The wilderness was a place of, plain, a place of pain, of humiliation, of uncertainty, of loneliness and desperation, all of which were necessary for me to experience if I was to be the writer I needed to be, wanted to be, prayed to be. How could I know the feelings of the desperate if I had not been desperate myself? How could I know the feelings of the poor if I had not been poor myself? How could I know the feelings of the confused if I had not been confused myself, or depressed myself, or abandoned Seminary prepared me to use my gift. The wilderness prepared me to live my life. Now, I would add that the wilderness also taught King Geyer how to hope. One of my regular prayers for Bible Chapel uh, is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, found in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. I think I put this up here for us. Yeah. This is Paul's prayer. Notice this. For this reason... I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you in your love for all the saints. By the way, you want to know what a believer looks like? What do you have in your life? What's demonstrated? Faith and love. 
do that. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. This is what Paul's praying. What's he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. And verse 18 is what I want to focus on. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. You're really going to understand it in the very core of who you are in your heart. What? That you will know what is the hope of his calling. Now, what does that mean? I mean, Paul prayed that we would know the hope of his calling. What does that mean? Well, whatever it means, we'll get into it maybe next week. But it certainly, I think, is applicable to today. Because let's face it, hope is in short supply. The last two years have seemed pretty hopeless, haven't they? I mean, how many of you are tired of this pandemic? Uh, So consider what we've been through the last 20 months. A COVID-19 global pandemic that shut down the countries of the world for months and continue to shut down portions of American society even today. Rising inflation as the economy struggles to recover from COVID-19. Supply chain issues as the economy struggles to provide the basic necessities Americans depend upon for daily life. Do you know why I pushed myself to get that shelving done? The supplies were so limited. I needed to get what I could get while it was there. We have furniture that we had ordered this year back in, was it June? We won't get till May of next year. Okay? And if you're ordering stuff online for Christmas, good luck. We've seen the rise of a racial social justice movement that has spawned protests, deadly rioting, and divided the country in the basis of skin color. A steep increase in crime as criminals run free in cities, destroying the very pe- places people earn their living. They're caught by police, and then what happens to them the next day? They're released. Corrupt liberal leaders pushing to defund the police, the very people called by God to maintain order in society by restraining crime. We've seen the emergence of a new dominant worldview entrenched in socialism called cultural Marxism that seeks to destroy democracy and the values that are the foundation that make America a bastion of hope, civic duty, hard work, humility, faith, family, moderation, the rule of law and capitalism, things we went over this morning. The discovery of an amoral educational system that is teaching our children a revised American history exposing our children to pornographic literature, instructing them in a comprehensive sex education curriculum that is borderline criminal, pushing of an LGBTQ plus ideology, blurring the lines of gender, and teaching children to be racist through critical race theory, all while America falls behind other nations in academic disciplines like math and science. You look at the world, and that's just the way it is. We see it every day. It's hard to be hopeful, isn't it? But if there ever was a time to strengthen the spiritual muscles of hope, Christmas is that time. So I want to begin briefly. 
by defining hope. Because ordinarily when we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty. What I mean by that is this. Hope is not finger-crossing. For some of you, it will not be, hope is not the lip-biting gaze as you watch the place kicker go for a field goal in the last 10 seconds when you're down by two points. I hope the kicker makes it and we win the game, right? But you're not really quite sure, but you hope. And hope is not just a desire for something good in the future. What is biblical hope? Well, really, it's defined like this. It's a confident expectation, desire for something good in the future. That's what hope is. It's confident. By the way, you know why hope is confident? Because all hopes are based on what? Promises. And all the promises of God are what in Jesus Christ? They are yes. Hope is such an essential and fundamental element of Christian life that like faith and love, it can itself designate the essence of Christianity. And hope, and here's the key, this is the point for this morning, is confirmed through trials. It's confirmed through the wilderness. Get your Bibles out, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And there's Roger Hancock. It is 4.45 right now. You need a battery in that clock. Romans chapter 8, verses, starting verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Folks, our hope consists of knowing the following. Number one, we know God is for us. You see that? If God is for us, then who is against us? Number two, we know God will give us all things. All things meaning he'll give us what is necessary. Number three, we know that no one can bring a successful charge against God elect because God has already declared us righteous. Amen? Number four, we know that no one can successfully condemn us. Well, why? Because Christ has already died for us. And number five, we know that no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul then lists a series of difficult circumstances that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Look at verse, last half of verse 35. 
Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, why is Paul able to write this, that none of those circumstances can ever separate us from the love of Christ? Well, you want to know why? Because Paul could say with confidence and through experience, he'd been through them. So he goes on to write in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 and 5, he'd been in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. In 2 Corinthians verse 11, he would go on and write this, verses 23 and 27. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's Paul's wilderness. That's Paul's life. Paul experiences. He says, I've been through it all. And what is his conclusion? What does verse 37 say, Romans 8? We are conquerors. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Nobody here has even come close. You're not even the radar or the vicinity of these experiences like Paul. Yeah, you've had hard times. I'm not downplaying that. But Paul says, through it all, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. See, and out of all those experiences, he is convinced that there is nothing that can separate him from the love of Christ. Look at verse 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, I want you to see this, that trials, wilderness testings, difficulties, yes, even the conflict we've been talking about, they have a way of strengthening our hope. Yes, living through, going through, surviving COVID should strengthen your hope. Because it is the strengthening of hope there's the end goal of tribulations. This, you don't need to turn and listen to this. This is Romans 5, verses 3 and 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. That sound familiar? What have I told you to do with conflict? Embrace it. Lean into it. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation, you could substitute the word wilderness in there if you want to. The tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings about what? Hope. Hope. And hope does not disappoint. And why doesn't hope disappoint? Because hope is based on the promises of God, and they are all yes in Jesus Christ. 
And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. One of my favorite movies about learning how to hope is the movie The Shawshank Redemption. You ever seen that? It's a story of redemption for two convicted criminals, Andy Dufresne and Ellis Boyd Redding. But there's one scene where Andy has just been let out of two weeks of solitary confinement. And here's how the conversation goes in the movie. He's coming in to, to, to lunch with everyone's eating in the cafeteria, and they say, was it worth two weeks in the hole for what you did? And he said, Andy said, it was the easiest time I ever did. Well, no such thing as easy time in the hole. It's, a week seems like a year. And he says, why Mr. Mozart to keep me company? Hardly felt the time at all. Red says this, they let you tote that record player down there with you, huh? I could have swore they confiscated that stuff. And Andy says this, and he taps his head and his heart. He says, the music was here and here. That's the one thing they can't confiscate, not ever. That's the beauty of it. Haven't you ever felt that way about music, Red? My play to me in harmonica as a younger man lost my taste for it, didn't make much sense on the inside here in prison. And he says this, here's where it makes most sense. We need it so we don't forget. Red says, forget what? And he says that there are things in this world not carved out of gray stone. That there's a small place inside of us that they can never lock away, and that place is called hope. That's all that prisoner has, is hope. Now, Red says this, Hope is a dangerous thing. Drive a man insane. It's got no place here. Better get used to the idea. See, I find out that there are far too many Christians like Red. Life has beaten them down. They're leery of hope. But we need more Christians like Andy who are full of hope. Because if anyone in this world should have hope, it is us. It is Christians. Now, towards the end of the movie, right before Andy escapes from prison, he makes his friend Red promise that if he ever gets out to go to a stone wall in the fields near the prison, and under the rocks near a tree, Andy has left something for Red. And after his release and while on parole, Red struggles to live life on the outside without fear. So he considers suicide. Then he remembers the promise to Andy he goes to the wall made of stones and discovers an envelope full of cash and a letter. And here's what the letter says. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. If you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? It's a town in South America called San Juan Teneo. I could use a good band to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red... Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I'll be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well, your friend Andy. And in closing, the movie ends with Red deciding to keep his promise to Andy because he's tired of living in fear. He says it's time to get busy, it's time to get busy living or get busy dying. And so for the second time in his life, he commits a crime. He skips out on his parole, 
board meeting and goes to find Andy in San Juan Taneo. And on the bus ride to the border, we find Red with a smile on his face and hear these thoughts racing through his mind as he's on his bus to Texas to cross over the border. He says, I find I am so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it is excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And so the application point is simple for this week. Hope. Let the difficult times we're going through confirm and strengthen your hope. In the hope that we have and that we celebrate in the birth of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, as we close this morning, thank you for the hope that we have in this world. Teach us how to hope, we pray. Strengthen our hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.